Hello and welcome to the show. I'm your host, Jason Knight, and on each episode of this podcast, I'll be having inspiring conversations with passionate product people. If that sounds like your cup of tea, I'd love it if you could head over to onenightinproduct.com and position yourself on my mailing list, or head over to the podcast app of your choice and position this podcast on your subscription list, in both cases so you can never miss another episode again. On tonight's episode, we'll be speaking about, you guessed it, positioning, with someone who literally wrote a book on it. We'll talk about what positioning is and what it isn't, how companies are and aren't doing a good job, why product market fit is, somewhat controversially, a myth, and the importance of crafting a sales narrative to help land the positioning around the organisation. We also find out the shocking story of what happened when our guest went to a famous author for advice, the feedback she got, and what she did next. For all this and much more, please join us on One Night in Product. So my guest tonight is April Dunford, an executive consultant, speaker and author who helps technology companies make complicated products easy for customers to understand and love. Aside from the official bio, April's a dog-loving manga aficionado and former hay collector who's now changed to a different field, but still making hay as the queen of product positioning and author of 2019's Obviously Awesome, How to Nail Product Positioning So Customers Get It, Buy It and Love It. Hi April, how are you tonight? Oh, I'm really good. That's that's the best intro me ever. <laughs> Put it all into the first minute. All of it. <laughs> Everything goes downhill after that. So, uh, so first things first. Obviously, awesome. It's obviously had loads of glowing reviews. Uh, I think it's on four point seven out of five on Amazon at the moment, or something like that. Yeah. So those are some pretty good numbers. When you sat down to write this book a couple of years ago, or, or whenever it was you started, were you expecting it to get this kind of reception? You know, I didn't think so many people would read it. That's for sure. Like, <laughs> like you know, it's it's kind of a it's kind of a narrow topic. And I'll tell you, when I first started talking about the book, I talked to a lot of book people about it. So you know, I got meetings with publishers and things, and I said, "Hey, I got this great idea. I'm going to write this book on positioning." And the publishers were all kind of like, "Hasn't that been written about before? Like, do we do we actually <laughs> need another book on positioning?" And I was like, "Yeah, but none of the books tell you how to do it." They don't tell you how to do it. I'm going to tell people how to do it. Publishers are not interested in how to do it books, though, all that much. So in the end, I ended up publishing it myself. And I thought it would be useful to me and maybe, you know, my clients and maybe some other people I had meetings with. And that was about it. So I am a bit surprised at how many copies have sold. It's done way better than I thought. And yeah, people like it. It seems to be doing all right. I feel good about it. They got it, they bought it, they loved it. That's it. So you did what you said in the tin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So far, so good. So far, so good. Long may it continue. But before we go into the book, let's talk a little bit about the April Dunford origin story. I know you started out working, I mean, you said before this call that you started out in engineering, did an engineering degree. Yeah. Started out at a database company back in the day. Yeah. And if I remember rightly from some other podcasts, you kind of stumbled into marketing to some degree. I don't know if that's fair to say. Oh, yeah. And then... Yeah, marketing chose me. I didn't choose marketing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's, if, the, if the shoe fits, right? Uh. Um, but then that experience there was, was what really became the catalyst for pretty much everything that came afterwards. I think the story around kind of the database stuff that you were working on and, and how you repositioned that. So how did your time there become the genesis and sort of opening your eyes to the power of positioning? 
Yeah. So like you said, I had a degree in systems design engineering. Uh, I didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life. I got a job at a startup, you know, and that was just serendipity. My friend worked there. She got me a job. It happened to be in product marketing. So I get this product marketing job at a startup. And I get assigned to this product that's that's kind of a dog. Like the, <laughs> the company had several products and one one was the cash cow product that made all the money. But I got assigned to the new product that was like an experiment that was failing. <laughs> and what we ended up doing with that product is I, I got the job of calling all the customers. We didn't have that many. Call all the customers and find out whether or not they're going to be mad if we end of life did. So I call everybody and it turned out the vast majority of people didn't even know they had it. They paid a hundred bucks for it. And they were like, what? I have this thing. Oh yeah. No, we don't use that. But there were a very small number of customers that loved it. Absolutely loved it, but they were using it for a use case that we had never imagined. And so what we decided to do in the end was reposition the product around that. And we effectively relaunched it into a new market with a completely different go-to-market strategy and pricing was different and everything else was different. The product stayed the same. And that relaunch, the product became totally successful. And so it took off. We sold tons. We eventually got acquired by a big company in the Valley. Um, I, My boss left shortly after. I took my boss's job. I don't know why they gave me this job. Like, and so I end up running marketing for this big division. Meanwhile, this this product is on fire, and at its peak was doing hundreds of millions of revenue. And so what what I learned from that first experience was that you can have a product that's actually amazing, but if it's poorly positioned, it can look like a failure. And you can take that same product, pick it up, and position it in a different market, and all of a sudden it looks like hot stuff. So every job I had after that as a senior marketing person, you know, I was always looking at this positioning, like, is there a way we could shift this to unlock some growth and some excitement in this product that isn't there in the way that it's positioned right now? So yeah, I'm a bit of an accidental marketer. (laughs) And I got into this positioning thing pretty early. Yeah, I was going to say, because that was very much your first role or or your first company, at least, maybe not the first role within the company. But yeah, Obviously, after that, you've worked in a variety of marketing and sales roles, Yeah, had a spell as a CEO of a project management startup for a time. But alongside that, I think as early as 2009, you were also doing some consulting, uh, as far as I can see from LinkedIn anyway. So was that literally a side gig or? Yeah, I don't think I was a very committed consultant. So what <laughs> happened was, is at some point, at some point in my career, I got very senior and I had been a vice president of marketing a handful of times. And what would happen with me is I'd come into the startup, tool up the team, you know, we get the revenue engine going for this thing. And if I'm doing my job right, we grow really fast. And what happened to me is you grow really fast and we get acquired. So then you're stuck at the big company for a couple of years doing your earn out or whatever. And so what I would do is I would pop out and how I started in consulting is I'd pop out from the big company. I need to find a new job somewhere. I want to go back to a startup. I'm not really sure which one. And I'm senior enough that I'm going to be kind of picky about it. So what I would do is I'd kind of consult for two or three at the same time and we see how it works out. (laughs) And then, you know, and then I would fall in love with one of them and then I'd go be their VP marketing and that's what I do. So I would say the first, you know, four or five years I was a consultant. I wasn't really a consultant. What I was doing was <laughs> you were just job yeah, hunting. it was job it was slow mo <laughs> job hunt. 
<laughs> but then I would say about five years ago, after I popped out of my last startup about five years ago, I was like, you know what? I think it's time for a change. I think I've done enough of this employee thing. I want to do something different. I kind of want to manage my own time and my own stuff. And so that's when I really seriously started consulting. And it was at that point where I said, you know what? I'm not like a part-time CMO. All I do is this positioning work. And I'm going to be very picky about who I do it with. And there's going to be a very well-defined offering. We're going to come in, we're going to fix your positioning, and then, we're, and, then I'm, and then I'm done. And so that's what I do now. And that's, that's what I plan to do forever. <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Although it does put the initial consulting into, into context, I guess, which is, yeah. which is interesting. But I think it's fair to say, and you, and you said it yourself, that positioning isn't necessarily very on trend. People think it's just marketing or they're looking for the latest growth hacks and and so on. It's not something that they initially maybe think about or think about properly. You said it yourself, your publisher didn't really want to publish or you didn't really, couldn't really find a publisher for the book and had to do it yourself. So it's obviously a tricky proposition to write this book. Was it literally because you were seeing all of this and, and thinking that no one's getting it that you decided that it was time to write the book? Was that what drove it? I see there was a couple of things. So one is, you know, when I was working with startups, I would have a meeting with the CEO and these meetings at the beginning, I would have to kind of explain, well, here's what positioning is. Here's what it looks like when it's bad. And, and maybe you, you recognize that in your own company. And here's what it could look like if it was good. And then here's what I'm going to do to help you solve it. And so that was kind of a long, complicated conversation, right? I'm talking to people who are not mark They don't have a marketing background. They don't know what positioning is. So I would have to explain all that. And Quite often, CEOs would find me at conferences, like I'd be doing a keynote speech at a conference, and the CEO would come up to me afterwards and say, oh, I have that problem. I didn't know it was called positioning, but I have that problem. <laughs> and so I had, so that was happening. At the same time, I had lots of smaller companies come to me that can't afford to hire a consultant. Like they're not even paying themselves at this point. They're so small and, you know, they, they don't have any extra money to pay me. But I, so I'm doing lots of coffee meetings with these kind of people, and I'm like, I could tell you how to do this yourself, right? But we need 10 coffee meetings to do it. So I'm trying to do like the condensed version of, okay, here's what you're going to do. One, two, three, four, five. And I tried to write a blog post about it, but it was just too long. You know, it turned into this long, long thing. And so I thought, I'll write a book and it'll serve two purposes. One, you know, when I get meeting with these, with these little guys that aren't going to hire anybody and I can't help them any other way. I just slide that book across the table and say, look, read this. This is everything I know. It's, it's, you know, do this. And then with potential clients, I could say, look, here's the methodology. This is what we're going to do together. You either buy it or you don't, right? If you think that sounds smart, I can help you do that. If you, if you don't, then, you know, we don't have to have nine meetings with me trying to sell you on it. <laughs> we can just leave it, you know, you just read the book and say, that's crap and not call me again. So, so I thought that's the, those are the two things the book was going to accomplish. And so that's why I wrote it in the first place. I do think it's interesting that, you know, when I started doing positioning work, it was really unfashionable. Like, you know, I would have this problem with, you know, I, I talked to publishers, they weren't interested in publishing it. I have the same problem with conference organizers. Like they'd come and say, Hey, we'd like to have you come speak at our conference. And you know, you got any good topics? And I'm like, oh, I'm going to do this talk on positioning. And they're like, oh, hey, got something cooler to talk <laughs> about? Like, what are you talking about? Some growth hacking thing. That's what everybody wanted me to talk about, growth hacking. 
But I really feel like we have seen in the past three, four years, a real shift away from that. And I think we're coming off of maybe a 10-year stint where companies were really focused in short-term tactical stuff and really focused on tactical execution. And I think the pendulum has swung back a little bit more to fundamentals and big strategic thinking. And, you know, how do we how do we build the underpinnings or the foundation of something really good before we get to the tactical execution? And that's really what positioning is all about. So I actually feel that right now, positioning's having a bit of a moment, but maybe that's just me. That's uh, all down to your book. No, no, I, yeah, no, I'm not, I'm not, uh, yeah, I don't have this, the ego big enough to think that that was me. But I do think these things come in waves. I think we tend to have a period where we're very tactically focused, and that is then followed by a period where we are very strategic focused. And if we fast forward another six, seven years, we will have another resurgent in something that looks like growth hacking, except we'll decide that it's new and we'll call it something else. <laughs> but yeah, we will swing back over the other way. It's just right now we're not there. Now, we said earlier that the reception for the book has been great. And obviously, that's true if you look at the Amazon reviews. But I remember you and I had a passing conversation a few weeks ago about how not all of the reception has been great. And in fact, you got told by a well-known author that it wasn't even a proper book. <laughs> now, I'm not going to ask you to name names, but what was that person talking about? Yeah, so I did. I had this conversation. It was really depressing, actually. This is, this was after the book was out, and I'd, I'd sold a rather significant number of books, to tell you the truth, and I had <laughs> So I was thinking about, I've got an idea for another book. So. I was thinking about, well, should I self-publish that too? Or should I maybe go with a proper publisher? Because this one's a different idea. And, I'm, you know, the last one I could have done with a publisher too. I just didn't think the publishers could do much for me. So I thought, you know what? I should talk to like proper book author that's done a bunch of books and I'll find out what do publishers actually do for you? And so I was talking to a friend of mine. And he said, oh, I, I'm really good friends with this person. And They've written lots of books and, and you know them because they're famous. And I said, oh, great. Yeah, I'll have a call with him. So I got on the call and we just, it was interesting. Like he came with a very, in my opinion, outdated view of what a book should be. And so in his idea, a book that's a how-to book shouldn't be a book. <laughs> like, like his idea of a book is, Books are ideas in book form. And you should only write a book when you have an idea that's like fighting to get its way out, but it needs to be conceptual. And it is not about helping people do stuff. It's about getting your idea in the world. And who cares how people execute on the idea? That was kind of his idea. So he said, he said, like your book, you know, he said, that's not a, that's not a book. It's not a book. Like you should have just, you should have just wrote a thing. It's a blog post, put it on the internet, whatever. And I was like, I don't know, man. There's like, there's like a lot of people would disagree with you on that, you know, including the thousands and thousands of people who bought my book and thought it was pretty good. But <laughs> so, yeah, so he, yeah, it was really, um, it, it, you know, also that guy was a dick. Like, let's just say, let's just say that right out. <laughs> He's also just a mean, snobby person that was a bit like, oh, you know, he, lit he literally told me, he said, I don't think 
you got it in you. Like he was a bit like that. And and yet he was like, you know, for me, you know, I have these ideas and they're fighting it out. And I was like, wow, it must be weird to have that much ego. But anyways, <laughs> so I, so I think that was, it was a bit of a weird conversation, but I also thought it was a bit of a window into how traditional book people think about this kind of stuff, right? Like it's not for practitioners. It's for, you know, people thinking big thoughts. And for me, I found that very frustrating because when I started my career marketing, you know, there was the big idea of positioning book already existed. It was by these guys, Reason Trout. It was called Positioning the Battle for Your Mind. I read it. Everyone's read it. It's an amazing book. I loved it. But at the end, I was so mad because all it did was get me excited about the idea, but it didn't give me one darn clue about how to go do it. And so that was the problem I was trying to solve. I was like, you know what? Like, you're right. I don't think I'm full of bright ideas, but I'll tell you what I am full of boat ton of practical experience and I'm going to help you actually figure out how to get it done. So I don't know if that's not a book. I don't know why I think that guy's wrong. Well, I'm looking forward to his next book failing dramatically, but you know, I guess we'll see. Well, I was mad and you know, I was kind of a fan before and like I had his book on my bookshelf and, and after I got off the call, I was like, Oh man, like <laughs> I hate that. Cause now I can't even like your stuff anymore. And I actually took his book off the bookshelf. And I drew a little mustache on his on his book jacket photo, like a little <laughs> evil mustache, like curling up. And then I took the book to the used bookstore so that somebody could buy it used instead of giving him another bit of money for a new copy. Yeah. So that's how that went. Don't meet your heroes. <laughs> so that's what that tweet was about. I understand now. <laughs> it all clicks into place now i know now i know there yeah so i'm not i'm not talking to any famous authors ever again because i don't <laughs> want to talk to them and have them wreck the books for me uh, like uh, yeah so that's it well back to the <laughs> back to the positive so your book sets the stage that positioning is one of the most critical things a company can do and like you said to be a really practical playbook on how to do it right it's got like step-by-step instructions and really actionable advice but so many people seem to just still do like the Mad Libs thing, mm-hmm. you know, crank out a positioning statement, fill in the gaps, print it out, they're done. Yeah. Now, you obviously say that they're not done. Why aren't they done? Well, so I think that that positioning statement is, not only is that positioning statement exercise useless, worse than that, I think it's potentially dangerous. So I learned that like, like after, you know, after I became a career marketer, I thought I better go back to school, right? So I took a bunch of marketing classes and I learned this positioning statement in marketing class. And what drove me crazy about it is, you know, you were, you were this Mad Lib thing, you, you fill in the blanks, but nobody tells you what's supposed to go in the blank. And so there's a blank that says something like market category. And I'm like, well, I just repositioned a product that we thought was desktop productivity software, but in fact, it was an embeddable database for mobile devices. Those two things are really different. Which one should I filled in the blank? Like, it doesn't give me any idea how to do that. And worse than that, the exercise itself tricks me into thinking that there's only one answer. And the answer, the best answer is whatever the heck pops into my head first. (laughs) And that's not true. And very often, that's a dangerous way to think about positioning. In fact, I think the biggest mistake you can make in positioning is to fall into this kind of default positioning trap that says, oh, well, this is email. What else could it be? So I think that's an important thing for people to think about. And so so again, when I started out in marketing, I didn't know how to do positioning. I learned the positioning statement. I was like, well, that's not helping me. So what are we going to actually do to get this thing done? 
And that sort of became an obsession of mine for a bunch of years. You also talk about making sure you identify the actual competition and where you're playing. And that that's not always just some other cool four-dimensional technology. Could be an Excel sheet, could be an intern, could just be doing nothing. Yeah. So that's obviously a really common bias that people have. Are there any ways that you can recommend getting people away from that kind of thinking? Yeah, I would say a lot of weak positioning stems from a kind of a misunderstanding about what the actual competitive alternatives are. And for me and my thinking, that was a bit of a breakthrough I had in my thinking about this, and which came from looking at jobs to be done stuff. So I was going down the rat hole of Clayton Christensen and all that jobs to be done stuff. And I, I, you know, and you know how they talk about the milkshake story and jobs to be done. So I read the milkshake story and I, and I was like, oh, the problem with this thing is that everybody thought it was a milkshake. And in fact, what it is, is a smoothie, right? Because people are drinking it for breakfast. So that got me thinking about, we often think about competitive alternatives only as competitors. So what are the other folks in the market that have a thing that look just like ours? Instead of taking the customer's viewpoint on it, which is more like, you know, if your product didn't exist, what would I do? And that's really different, right? That, that's really different. And when you, when you get at that with customers, they are often like, I spend a lot of time in B2B software and B2B software, we're almost always competing with Excel, or <laughs> pen and paper, Word documents, manual processes, get an intern to do it, stuff like that. Or it's like, I could use my ERP or my accounting software and they got a little feature. It was never meant to do this, but we can kind of make it work, <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's what you see people using out there. And it's important to remember that if you're selling into an account, you're competing with different kinds of competitors. So the first thing you're competing with is status quo. So, you know, they're doing it now. They, it's not like the problem just showed up yesterday. They're solving the problem now in a way probably sucks. But in order for them to adopt you, they got to leave that. So you got to beat that. But then you've also got to beat, like, if it's B to B, these folks, when they do decide, okay, we can't do status quo anymore. We got to go do something different. They're generally making a short list and you got to beat everybody on the short list too. So. When we think about competitive alternatives and who we have to position against, I can't just compete against everybody on the shortlist. I actually got to compete against status quo too. And so in looking about at my positioning, I got to think about step one, what's status quo? Then they're going to make a shortlist. Who else is on the shortlist? Now, all of that is my competitive set. And now once I have that, then I can say, okay, now I know who I got to beat. What have I got that they don't got? And that includes like, you know, what can I do that that Excel can't do? Because and this is where people fall in the trap of like, oh, you know, you should buy us because we're really easy to use. And it's like, my dude, Excel, it's really easy to use. <laughs> the intern is really easy to use. And if you, if you don't realize you're competing with that, you might fall into this trap of trying to position around things that don't work if you consider the status quo. So obviously you call out interns a few times and I've heard you do it before. Have you ever got in trouble with the union of interns at any point? Or? <laughs> yeah, no. You know, somebody made fun of me the other day because usually if I, if I say it, I'll be like, I'll be like, the intern's really easy to use. And I always do use this imaginary <laughs> intern. And in my mind, my imaginary intern is called Joey. I have no idea where that name comes from. I've never had an intern named Joey. But I'm always like, hey, Joey, get me a coffee while you're at it. Fill out the spreadsheet. But somebody somebody messaged me the other day and was like, why is it always Joey? Like, why can't you <laughs> pick on someone else? And I'm like, 
I don't know. My imaginary intern is named Joey. Uh, he's he's suffered so much. Yeah, no, the intern people don't. They haven't contacted me, but maybe. Yeah, no, Joey. I feel bad for Joey. I'm always making him get coffee and fill out the spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, well, I'm sure, sure, sure his next job will no be. No one his. will ever intern for me. That's, like, <laughs> this, is what, this is what's happening right now. Everyone's like, yeah, no, don't intern for her. That sucks. You also said somewhat controversially that you don't believe that product market fit exists. Hmm. Now, I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people out there that would disagree with that. And maybe even people listening to this crushing their cups at this very moment. Yeah. Now, at its heart, obviously, if you consider how most people would define product market fit, it's having a, a product that satisfies a strong market demand. And that doesn't seem 100 miles away from some of the concepts in your book right? around sort of determining who cares a lot. right? So do you think that product market fit really doesn't exist or do you think that it's just used as a buzzword for something but that the core concept is kind of sound? Yeah, like I, I think what I really believe is that I don't, I don't believe product market fit is like a thing that you can work towards. Like, I don't think it's an operationally useful concept in startups because, you know, I, I can't really tell you exactly when I have it. I can't tell you how I'm going to measure it. I, you know, people have really different definitions of what it is. You know, people say, well, you know it when you have it, you know, like it's like love or something. <laughs> <laughs> and then they'll say, and then, and then, but, and then you can also lose it. And we don't know why, but you can. And, and so I think, well, you know, it, like that just that just feels really superstitious to me. And and here's what people do agree on: we agree that the reason we want product market fit is because the minute we have product market fit, we're going to step on the gas in marketing and sales and grow like heck. Because that's the moment where we're not thrashing around anymore. We've got this thing now. We can step on the gas and grow like heck now. The reason it bugs me, maybe more than it does a VC, is that I'm the vice president of marketing, right? Like back when I was working in a company, I'm the vice president of marketing. So I'm the person that does the stepping on the gas. <laughs> and I've worked on at lots of companies where I, you know, I walk in and the CEO is like, we got it. We got this product market fit. I just know. I have the feeling. <laughs> I have the product market fit feeling. So you, vice president of marketing, get out there and step on the gas. And I'm like, okay, yeah, good. Let's step on the gas. Okay. First thing though, who exactly am I going to build these marketing campaigns for? Because I need a really solid definition of that. And when I, when I am building these campaigns, who do we compete against and how do we win? And we call that in marketing an actionable segmentation. It is a segmentation with enough detail on it that I can run really targeted, effective campaigns at it. Now, do I know what an actionable segmentation is? Yes. Do I know how to get an actionable segmentation? Yes. And I, you know, so if you come to me and say product market fit, eh, like I've worked at lots of companies <laughs> where the CEO had the product market fit feeling, but we had nothing that looked like an actionable segmentation. So who the heck cares if I have product market fit? Because I can't step on the gas because I don't have the stuff that I need to actually do that. So in my opinion, I think that product market fit is a concept for VCs. It represents the moment that is the perfect moment for you to write a check. Because it is the moment where the company has not done this exponential growth yet, but is just about to do it. And so if I was a VC, I would really want that to exist, right? Like, 
really, because that's going to represent this magic moment. But does anybody know how to measure it? Does anyone, like if it was easy, all the VCs, you know, wouldn't have a problem picking, picking companies to invest in. This would be easy. We'd just say, show me the product market fit stuff, got it or not, and then we're going to do it. So I think product market fit is VC magical thinking. They want it to exist because it should exist and it, and it, and it does. We just can't measure it. And we don't know what it is. We don't, you know, maybe we're going to lose it, all this stuff. And I think that because the VCs are so keen on the idea, you as a CEO of a startup, you got to buy into that too. Like you got to go take the meeting and say, absolutely, Mark Andreessen, we have product market fit, man, because I need your money. <laughs> so the <laughs> founders have been forced to buy into this and you don't dare go on the internet and say you don't believe in it because your investors believe in it and you got to prove that you got it, even though it's impossible to prove that you have it. So we're stuck in this kind of weird thing. And so whenever I say, I don't think it's operationally very interesting, a thousand practitioners come out of the woodwork and say, yeah, you're right. But you know, we're not allowed to say it out loud if, we're, if we ever hope to raise any money. <laughs> so I think it's an interesting idea, but I, th I think it's operationally not very useful. And you would do better to focus on, do I have an actionable segmentation that would allow me to put my foot on the gas, right? Like, what do I need to put my foot on the gas? And let's work at getting clarity on all those things. Once I have that, then I know I can put my foot on the gas and we accomplish the same thing. Oh, fair enough. We'll, we'll see if anyone wants to rebut that. Nobody ever argues with me except VCs. Like it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's VCs are the occasional founder that's really bought into it that's in the middle of trying to fundraise. But usually it's VCs. Like I talk about it on Twitter and like a thousand VCs go, what? You're crazy. How can you say that anything that, that you know a VC has ever said is stupid? And I'm like, occasionally there's a thing that I'm not saying it's stupid. I just don't think operationally is very useful or useful or even further useful at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That's my rant on product market fit. It's not a thing. It's not a thing. It's like unicorns. It's like, it's like, I want a pony. <laughs> like, you know, I want a pony, but that doesn't mean that, that I get a pony, you know, my backyard's kind of. Stupid, <laughs> you know. Another challenge you flagged is the lack of alignment sometimes across the leadership team around their positioning, which obviously has knock on effects because you can't expect the company to come together around a vision if the exec team can't. You've mentioned the concept of a market point of view story, mm -hmm. uh, something to drive alignment throughout the leadership and beyond. Now, I think that's a new thing. I don't think that was from the book. I might be wrong. Is that something that you can share a little bit of your thought about how we'd create such a story, or is that is that book too? Yeah. No, yeah, for sure. So the, f the first part of that is that People often ask me who owns positioning, like inside the company, like who should be doing positioning. And I feel really strongly that positioning is a cross-functional effort. Like in the work that I do with clients, you know, I'm working with the executive team together because I need to have alignment across sales, marketing, product, customer success, the executive team, across all those folks. Like we need to be all focused on our positioning needs to be consistent. We need to be all focused on the same goal. We need to be all rowing towards the same spot. So I think when we do positioning, we got to do that all together. Then we have this thing of, you know, what do we do with positioning once we've got it? So there's a handful of things that, you know, come immediately after positioning. What most people want to do right away is they want to go build messaging. So it's like, okay, we got the positioning. Let's figure out what the copy on the homepage says. But if we're in B2B and we have in particular, and we've got a sales team, we need to kind of build a sales story. Like 
how do I tell this story if I'm sitting across from a customer and the customer says, or prospect, I should say, and the prospect says, hey, what are you guys all about? How do you tell that story? And ideally, we have the executive team together and we figure out positioning, but we kind of need to have a way to communicate positioning in a way that isn't just a document that says, here's who we compete with, here's how we're different, here's the value, et cetera, et cetera. So, and the best way to do that is to have a story around that. So, in the work I do with clients, we focus on what I call a sales narrative or a point of view pitch, which is like, you know, now that we have the positioning, how do we actually weave that into a story that communicates to a good fit prospect? Why pick us over anybody else or over any other way of doing this? So in the work I do with clients, that point of view narrative, you know, my thinking on that started with like, I used to build sales pitches and I didn't have much of a structure to it. And in fact, most of the startups that I work with don't have much of a structure to how they build pitches, particularly customer facing pitches. But my thinking on that was really influenced by this book called The Challenger Sale. Yep. Corporate Executive Board. At B2B, people have all read The Challenger Sale. Yeah, I've read it. I, I used it when I was at IBM, and that was kind of our way of building pitches there. But when I went to a startup after using it at, at IBM, I was a bit like, you know, there's a lot of the stuff feels like kind of overkill for a startup. And so since then, I've been using kind of a modified version of that. I mean, it borrows a lot of the concepts in terms of the structure, but really what you want to do is you want to get a prospect aligned with your point of view on the market. Like the first thing you have to understand is any prospect that's going to buy software, if we think about B2B software, they've never bought this stuff before. And all they see is a big list of competitors and they're like, I don't know. I don't even know how to make a short list. Like I have no way of thinking about this market. And so what the point of view pitch does is it gives the customer a way to think about, look, here's the problem. Here's all the different approaches to solving the problem. And here's kind of the pluses and minuses of each of those approaches. You know, none of them are bad. They're all fine in certain situations. But for you, customer, in your situation, like the way I've defined my target market, for people that look like you, there's a gap here. And we've built a product that perfectly fills that gap. And here's why you need to do it a different way. And we've chosen to take this approach because it's the best for people like you. So that idea of getting a customer aligned to your point of view on the market is super important because what you're doing is you're giving them a rubric for how to think about all the competitors and everybody in the market. It gives them a way to figure out what is my purchase criteria and how do I make decisions in this market? Now, this is super important because like 40% of purchase processes end in no decision. And the data tells us that they end in no decision because not because the, the customer couldn't pick the right solution, is because the people in the buying team couldn't agree on the approach. And so if you're not selling around that to say, look, here's how to agree on the approach. <laughs> now let me tell you why mine is the best, you know, the best implementation of that approach then I think you're missing a trick and I think you're likely to lose a lot of deals to no decision. There's that whole thing from the challenger sale around trying to basically help write the RFP effectively, right? So that you can you can really frame the discussion around your strengths and avoid your weaknesses. That's right. Is it very much an extension of that or it's a bit, right? But it's it's kind of it's kind of given people an idea of you know, here's what we've got right now. Like for the longest time, if you wanted to 
make a short list of vendors to look at, you there would be some kind of trusted advisors that you could go to to help you with that, right? Like you might have you might go to Gartner Group or one of these industry analysts, or you might just do it the hard way by calling up the vendors themselves and saying what you all about and whatever. Now, if you're trying to make a short list, nobody does that. Like everyone just Googles it and they end up on G2 Crowd or Software Advice or one of these comparison sites. And these sites are literally optimized to increase customer confusion (laughs) because they make money from customer confusion. The longer you stay in the research phase, the more money they make. So they're optimized to grab your eyeball when you're researching and keep you in the research phase for freaking ever. (laughs) So they get there and they see this quadrant and there's 9,000 things in the top right and the axes don't even make sense. And you're looking at the things in the top right and you're like, oh my God, they all look the same. Their rankings all the same. Everything (laughs) is the same. And it's not getting you any closer to figuring out like, what should I pay attention to here and what shouldn't I? And so I think that leaves a very big opportunity for vendors to fill that hole if we can do it in an honest and straightforward way that isn't like bashing my competitors. It's like, look, there's different approaches to this problem. And, you know, for customers like you, we believe that this approach is the best. And if you do choose this approach, we're the best ones for it for these reasons. But I think there's a lot of opportunity for companies to help customers in their purchase journey when they're just trying to make sense of the market. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm looking forward to buying the templates at a low, low price for (laughs) mapledunford.com. There's no templates yet, man, but maybe someday. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I didn't explain this stuff in the book. I went as far as, okay, here's positioning. Here's what we do. And then here's my recommended two, three things you do after you're done the positioning exercise. And the first one is, you should write a sales narrative and you should build a pitch deck and then you should go and test it with customers. But I didn't get into too much detail on how to write a sales narrative because there's lots of ways to skin that cat. But companies that come and work with me as a consultant, we always do the sales narrative bit at the end because if we don't do that, then I run the risk that the company goes back and you know each of the executives goes back to their team, but they struggle with how to communicate what this new positioning is all about. And so we got to do that. Um, but but again, you can't you can't write the sales narrative until you have the positioning. You need to have the positioning first. Then we write the sales narrative. Then we can figure out stuff after that. Sounds good. So where can people catch up with you if they want to talk about positioning or, or any of the stuff that they've heard on this interview? Well, so my website is com. You can go there. And I'm not super active on a lot of social media, except maybe Twitter. And and I'm not super active there either. But once in a while, I have pithy, pithy (laughs) uh, positioning tweets uh, when I'm not like tweeting cat jokes and things. Um, So that's probably the, and I'm at April Dunford if you go there. And then the, and then the book is available anywhere you buy books. There's an audio book. There's an ebook. The audio book is great. You get like four hours of my Canadian accent. It's really great. <laughs> yeah. I, I did see that you, uh, that you narrated your own audio book. I did. It's a stupid idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never do it again, man. I was so hoarse. <laughs> I sat in the studio for like 12, 13 hours for four hours of finished audio. Oh my gosh, that is a hard job. And I underestimated the difficulty of doing that. We'll get that douchebag author to do it next time. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. <laughs>
<laughs> yeah. No, he's got big ideas to think about, man. He's busy thinking big ideas. <laughs> uh, well, that's been a fantastic chat. So obviously, really appreciate you taking the time. Let's stay in touch. But for now, again, thanks for taking the time. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for having me. As ever, thanks for listening. If you like what you heard and you'd like to come back for more, again, I can only advise you to head over to onenightinproduct.com and sign up for the mailing list or investigate some of the other fantastic episodes or pop to the podcast app of your choice, subscribe there and share with your friends on social media so they can have a listen too. I'll be back soon with another inspiring guest, but for now, thank you and good night. <laughs>